Gracious Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, and especially that which is shown to us in and through your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to your word this evening, to learn more about him and the significance that he should play in our lives, would you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, as we seek to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that you will be with me now as I seek to share these truths with your people. May we all live more to the glory of your great name as a result. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. It's hard to believe that I've been with you in this little country for little over eight months. Believe me, spending a lot of time with you guys, it feels a lot more. I'm joking, I'm joking. Where has the time gone? I find myself this week reflecting upon what I've learnt from you as a culture so far over this time. I'm wondering to myself, what is it that stands out as something that I can take home with me to Northern Ireland when people ask me the question, so Thomas, these Australian folk, what are they really like? Is it all, you know, like we see on TV, like home and away? Is it, is it like neighbours? Is it all, you know, shrimp on the barbie? That's the best accent you're going to get. What is it that sets these Australians apart from others around the world? Maybe it's their hard work ethic. Some people are laughing at that already. Maybe it's their kind hospitality, which I can bear testimony to. Maybe it's their sense of humour. No, it couldn't be that. (laughs) These, (laughs) I am jesting, of course. But what is it then that sets Australians apart? What does it mean to be Australian? And one thing kept coming to mind time and time again, and it's that you have a great love for cutting down the tall poppy. Does that sound fair? But you know it's true. Now, I'll admit I've been guilty of doing this um, myself from time to time, um, cutting down somebody that gets that little bit um, ahead of themselves. But also, if if I'm being honest and confessing all here now, that I know how to boast in my accomplishments and have appreciated, though, being brought down a peg or two in the past. If we are honest, I think we would all say that we know how to boast. We know how to brag about our accomplishments. And we do, in some small way, appreciate it when people bring us back down to earth. It's how we as people, and it's the same back home in Northern Ireland, we show our affection for one another, our camaraderie, our friendship, by really digging deep into each other. But in our passage today, we see a different kind of boast. Not a boast that comes from one, not the boast that comes from one owns personal achievement, but a boasting that is found only in Jesus Christ. A boasting that is true, A boasting that we shouldn't be so quick to cut down or dismiss, but one that might just save our lives and the lives of those around us. Backtracking a little to last week, Phil helpfully shared with us from 2 Corinthians 10 and unpacked for us how Paul had to defend himself against these super apostles. How Paul was reluctant to boast about the role role that God had given him but that if it took him to go to the point of boasting, 
to win these Corinthians back to the one true gospel. He would do it, but he would still honor the Lord in the process. He ended chapter 10 with these great verses. And can I invite you to look um, at those now? Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 10. So the one who boasts must boast in the Lord, for it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Paul is preparing his readers for what a godly boast sounds like. He says in verse 1 of our reading this evening, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. Paul's saying, what I'm about to say will sound a little foolish to you. But we know, as I've told you before, the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. But remember, the Lord has given me this very specific boast to build you up, not to tear you down. God has assigned me, chosen me to come to you with this gospel message. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, for your salvation, please put up with this little bit of foolishness from me. Please put up with my boast. Hear me out. And it's here we see Paul's first boast as a father. Verse 2. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. I don't know about you, um, but I've often wondered, is there any correlation between seeing children grow older especially girls, into their teenage years. And fathers all of a sudden becoming interested in hunting sports or sports that involve a bat or a club or anything of that sort of nature. I would consider that an interesting story. And for any of the guys out here who are currently dating relationships, always inquire about what sports um, the girl's father likes. Whilst there is still much to be said in our day and age for the protective nature of a father over his daughter. It's a very different reality to what it was like in Paul's day. For you see, in the ancient world, once a daughter was engaged or betrothed, or as the Holman here says, promised to her husband-to-be, she was considered as a bride awaiting her wedding day. It was the father's responsibility, namely his duty, to protect her virtue, her purity, until that day. Here, however, of course, Paul isn't talking about a human relationship, a human potential husband and wife. No, the betrothal that Paul here talks about is between the groom, Christ, and the bride, his church. Paul is commissioned to protect the virginity, the purity of this church, awaiting the final day in which Christ will claim his bride. He's jealous because God has used him to plant the church here. He's the one who came and brought the gospel to this place. He's the one who has a right to be jealous over them. However, Paul detects a problem. Like a jealous fool, he's concerned about them being led astray. And we look at verse 3 now. It says, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. 
To Paul's great joy, there were many in the church who had repented from their rebellion, who had denied the teaching of these false apostles and were living the right way. There were, however, still many who, under the influence of these opponents of Paul, these false teachers, who continued to reject Paul and the truth of his gospel. But what was it that they were being attracted by? What was so attractive to this this Corinthian church that Paul didn't have? What did these false teachers have? What did they do? What were they taken captive by? Verse 4 shows us. Paul says, For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Despite knowing the truth of the gospel message that Paul had proclaimed firsthand to this Corinthian church time and again, when the Corinthians were presented with this alternative gospel, this alternative spirit, this alternative Jesus, they tolerated it and really they had no excuse. And I'll show you why. Flick with me for a second in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll give you a quick second to look at that. And this is really a portion of scripture. All of chapter 15 looks at Paul's claims of the resurrection and defends the truth of the resurrection here to these Corinthians. But looking at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Just the first verse. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and you have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you. These Corinthians had received the truth, not only by Paul in person, but also in his reminder in this first letter sent by him. And fast forward to the end of chapter 15, verse 58, if you would. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul has told these Corinthians specifically to believe the truth, to remain in the truth, not to compromise. But what have they done? These Corinthians should know the gospel, the true gospel, but they have been so easily blinded by by the smooth talk and the appealing lifestyles of these false preachers. I wonder if this was us, if this was our church under the same attack, would we be able to detect the false teaching that here Paul is challenging? And if we detected this false teaching, what would we do about it? Folks, I want to appeal to you this evening that this is not a dead issue. It's not something that existed in the early church and therefore was forgot about. (coughs) Sadly, back home, I could take you, back home in Ireland, I could take you to many Anglican churches that consider themselves to be Protestant, evangelical, reformed. They have all the labels. These churches that teach, or so I could take you to these churches, but these these churches teach that 
it's only through the process of water baptism that you can be saved. It's only through being baptized as a child that you're instantly saved and you're therefore a Christian and are going to be with Jesus in heaven. These same churches will pray to the saints. They'll pray for the dead. These churches believe Jesus was a good guy, but deny him as the son of God. Churches who are willing to pull young people out of biblical church fellowships and stick them into what can only be described as a rave or a nightclub disco scene so that they can experience what real church is all about. This is very true to the Christian world that I lived in back home. But I'm sure you wouldn't need to look too far to find the same here in Sydney. As Phil rightly pointed out last week, Christians are often accused of living in this spiritual bubble, not appreciating the threat out there to the preservation of the truth of the Christian gospel. The threat is real, folks, and we all have to be ready to defend the truth of our faith. Moving on in our passage to our next point, we're going to be looking at Paul's boasting in humility. That might sound like a bit of a ridiculous term to you or me, humble boasting. How does one remain humble in boasting? Now, each of you may have that friend, that friend who doesn't quite know when to close their mouth. That friend who, whenever they open their mouth, their foot is more in it than out of it. But I have a friend, and um, back home, he turned around to me one day, and I do hope he's listening um, back home if he hears this. But uh, back home, he turned around to me one day and said, as plain and as straightforward and as deadpan face as you want, he says, Thomas, you know what? I'm the most humble Christian I know. (laughs) I said, oh, really? Good for you. Um, I think I did take one look at his face. I one look at him, and I just laughed in his face. But that's definitely one way to consider a humble boast. But of course, this is not the sort of humble boast that Paul is talking about here. His humble boast is in regards to money. And we'll show you here what he means by that. In the the Corinthians' eyes, Paul was already a bit of an oddball. A real social oddity. So you remember Phil speaking last week, talking about how he was weak how he, you know, was shabby in appearance. Um, And compared to these other false teachers, he didn't look very much. But what stood out even more, what made Paul stand out even more, was the fact that he was working as a tent maker during his ministry. And this automatically labeled him as a lesser teacher. If anyone in the ancient world was worth their weight in preaching and teaching ability, Surely they wouldn't have to work part-time on the side. And no doubt this, amongst other things, um, added to his public reputation for being what they considered to be an inferior preacher. These superficial Corinthians, who were easily impressed by the flattery, the la-di-da of the the false teachers, the use of the big words, poetic speech, they considered these false apostles to be so superior to Paul's God-given knowledge. Paul responds with with what can only be considered as one of the most sarcastic lines in Scripture. He says, I consider myself in no way inferior to these super apostles. You can sense that element of a sarcastic tone. And yet, 
by using his conduct as an example, by using everything that had went on before and everything the Corinthians could bear testimony to, he challenges them and asks, tell me, was it a sin for me to lower myself rather than take your money? Was it a sin that I preached the gospel to you free of charge? Was it a sin that I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to save you? Was it a sin that I haven't burdened you in any way, but that I did this out of love for you? No, Paul says, I will boast that I preached this gospel to you free of charge because that way, only that way you will know that I love you. And God knows that I love you. By not receiving a penny from you, you should know that I preach. I share these truths from a pure heart. I have no hidden agenda. You should realize, open your eyes, that these super apostles are not our equals, even though they claim to be. See if they could preach for free in the same way that we do. It is by this example that you will know that the truth of the you will know the truth of the gospel message that I proclaim. At this time in Corinth, Paul had forfeited his God-given right as an apostle to receive support from this Corinthian church, just so that his message doesn't get mixed up with that of these false apostles those who wanted to take their money. Paul is setting himself apart for the sake of the gospel. He is denying himself, showing these Corinthians the true way to Christ and not allowing money to get in the way. I wonder if we could take a step back for a moment and put the spotlight brightly on these two ministries that you see before you. Paul on one side and these false teachers to the other. If we would look at Paul, we would see that his gospel was concerned with dying to self, living for Christ, focusing on the ministry of reconciliation, encouraging others to share the good news about Jesus. Contrast that to these false teachers, and it couldn't have been more different. As Jesus taught in Matthew seven fifteen and 16, Beware of false apostles who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And of course, what were the fruits of these false teachers? They weren't focused on selfless living, but living for self, selfish living. Putting others down so that they themselves would be raised up. Exploiting people for financial gain. Winning people over and deceiving them with false promises and eloquent speech. Preaching like this is often associated with something that's called a gospel plus heresy. The gospel plus that little bit more sweeten the deal. And this is point two on your outline looking at the false teaching of these super apostles. And let me explain a little bit about the difference between gospel plus heresies. And when I say heresies, I mean false teaching. 
gospel plus false teaching and gospel minus false teaching. Hands up for a second. If you have ever watched or been a fan of, well, not judge it, it's okay, um, watched or been a fan of any sort of law, court, drama, or anything like Judge Judy, Judge Judy or Judge Jury and all that sort of stuff, hands up. Has anyone seen any programs with a courtroom in it? Yes, hands up. Excellent, even better, good. So whenever, whew, just make sure this example works. Um, <laughs> looking at those sort of law programs, okay, looking at, Picture picture yourself in the courtroom um, scenery, courtroom scene. And imagine, you know, whenever the bailiff comes up and gets the person who's in the witness box to put their hand onto the Bible, what do they say? I swear to tell the truth, the and excellent, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Phil here is going to keep me right in case I do anything wrong. Um, But talking about this truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay? So, truth, easy enough. We can understand that. Tell the truth. But why do they say, tell the whole truth? So it's saying, don't leave anything out. Don't take anything away from the truth. That's a God, that's a minus. That's taking away from the truth. They say, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the reason they say, nothing but the truth, is so that you don't add anything to the truth. You have the truth, the truth with nothing taken away, and the truth with nothing added. Apply the same concept here to the gospel, and you have a good idea of what we're talking about and what Paul was putting up with here with these false teachers. If you imagine what this... So yeah, I'll come this way, sorry. The vast majority of Christians we have around us, you and me, a lot of people will always be able to, or most likely, be able to detect and appreciate a gospel minus heresy. We can notice when something's been taken away from the gospel message that we've maybe been taught in Sunday school or kids club or whatever it may be. A false teaching that has taken something away, such as, Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. Or, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Things like that, and for most of us, Whenever we hear things like that, for most of us, our gospel detectors go, Nina, Nina, Nina. We understand there's something wrong. Fair enough. However, where many Christians trip up, where many Christians are deceived, is not in gospel minus heresies, but in gospel plus heresies. Those people that are able to share with you the full truth of the gospel, they're able to say, Yes, we believe the gospel. Yes, we are Christians. Yes, we believe Jesus lived and died and rose again and that he is coming back to bring us to be with him in heaven if we believe and trust in him. But we also believe that the Spirit has special revelation for you today. We believe in a fuller expression of faith. We believe in, insert what you like, Can you see how easy it is to fall into this trap? To give people this extra grace to say, oh, you believe so much. You believe this to be true. You believe this to be true. You believe this to be true. You must be true in this as well. Let me join you. How easy it is to fall into that trap. These Corinthians were receiving impressive teaching 
That was, that was exactly what they wanted to hear, but not what they needed to hear. And so we're fooled. Folks, Satan, as the father of lies, can attack in the black and white, but he's a master of the gray. And that's exactly who Paul goes on to now associating with these super apostles in these next few verses. Look on with me, verses 13 to 15. He says here, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What I find most disturbing about these verses is that what is being described here are not some unbelievers who are maliciously setting out to infiltrate and destroy the church as some sort of undercover agency. Like a mission impossible filled with spies, how can we undermine the church? Not like that. They're actually professing Christians who Paul roundly accuses of doing the devil's work. They may be deceiving themselves and others that they are doing God's work, but their works reveal that they serve another God. They only masquerade as apostles in the same way that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Paul is calling on the Corinthian church here to see the truth. Can't you see it? To see these apostles for who they really are and call them out on it. For there is more than just street credibility. There's more than just church numbers here at stake. Paul closes these verses this evening with this. He says, their destiny will be according to their works. Folks, this is an important reason for us to stand up for the truth of the gospel. It's why we don't shy away from big, hot topics of discussion, such as same-sex marriage and the likes. Whilst the truth of the gospel is at stake, and that is the most important thing here, don't hear me wrong, so too are the lives of those people who are under the influence of these false teachers. They're at stake here also. They too, if they continue in the way that they're going, will share in the eternal destiny of these false apostles in hell. This is the eternal destiny of every soul that is being deceived by the trickery of Satan and his minions. And folks, God has called each of us, every single person that calls himself a true Bible-believing Christian, into this ministry to preach the truth of the gospel to not only those outside the church, but to those inside as well, to preserve the truth of the gospel as only it and it alone has the power to save. As we near the end of our time here this evening, having looked at Paul and having looked at these Satan-led false apostles, I want us to consider the last character or the last characters on display, and that is the church here in Corinth. A church that was easily led astray 
A church that was easily impressed by eloquent yet false teaching. A church that all too easily allowed falsehood to penetrate their lives, even though for a time they had the truth and were living well in its light. So quickly, and before we close, ask yourself the question, how do we avoid becoming like this church, both individually and collectively? If you have switched off, or I've heard nothing else I've said this evening, now is the time to quickly jump back in um, so you know what to talk to people about afterwards. I have three very quick points of application that summarize what we've been looking at here this evening. And please do feel free to jot these down. Point number one, don't be fooled by words. Sometimes flattering words will pamper our pride. But these false apostles spoke about the spirit, the gospel, and Jesus. They had all the right sort of language. But what, was meant, what they meant by them, and what the true Christians meant by them, was at polar opposite ends. It was completely different. I know in the same way, back home, there are say, Christian friends of mine, ministers who will not use the term Christian anymore from the pulpit or in their public work, simply because what even that term means now, it has been so diluted down. Don't be so quick to believe everything you hear, but test it by the one true authority that we have in Scripture. That's point number one. Don't be fooled by words. Point number two, don't be naive about money. And this is really focusing on, this, on the middle section that we looked at with Paul. And I know we've talked about money um, a lot over the past number of weeks here in church. But what made Paul stand out from these false apostles was his willingness to sacrifice all for the sake of the gospel. And he warns us here to be wary of those who make money and status their idol, especially in ministry. And thirdly and finally, don't be sentimental about tolerance. Don't be tolerant in this way. Ask yourself the question, where do you draw the line? When is enough enough? What does it mean biblically to speak of Christian love and charity? And is it not loving to tell people when they're in the wrong, when it might just save their soul? This father in Christ, this father of the church, Paul, couldn't stand idly by and watch his daughter being seduced without protest. Where many churches are willing to lay down everything for the sake of unity and compromise, we who call ourselves sons and daughters of the Most High God are to know the truth, are to defend the truth. We are to stick to the truth. And we are to let this be our only boast. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do indeed have a gospel to proclaim. That in and through your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have raised us from death to life. Lord, give us a boldness to declare that message faithfully to this world. 
to be willing to stand up and not be deceived by the arrows, the onslaught, the false words of the evil one. Help us to be mindful of who we let invest in us and the teaching we receive. Help us always to be willing to check it with your precious word. Help us, Lord, to not be foolish. Help us not put up with false teaching to be super tolerant. But, Lord, help us to stand on your truth, to defend your truth, and to bring your truth to a word, to a world that needs it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.